Hey, Jay, what's the deal with Lady Deathstrike? Hates Wolverine, leads the Reavers, kinda a cyborg. Why? Uh, well, she's not originally from X-Men, is she? She is not. She made her first official appearance in Daredevil number 197. What was she doing there? Helping Daredevil thwart her father, who had rescued Bullseye. What did Lord Darkwind want with Bullseye? Mostly to give him some adamantium bones in hopes that he'd help restore Japan to a pre-World War II feudal state. Huh. And Yuriko was against this? Well, Yuriko was in love with one of her dad's underlings and wanted to get him out from under Lord Darkwind's thumb. Oh, fair enough. So did they find Bullseye? Sorta, of, but they were stymied by the fact that Bullseye was tracking them, too. While recovering from having adamantium installed in his skeleton, that is an impressive trick. Not really. How so? Well, it turned out that he and Daredevil hated each other so hard, it generated a psychic link. What?! I'm J. Rachel Adderton. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here... To explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 124 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Hey, Jay. Uh, welcome back. And I guess welcome back to both of us, because we were traveling. Yes, I believe we both technically got back today, although I got back on the very, very early end of today. Yeah, and I just drove back from camping. I went camping. It was so good. I went to Cougar Hot Springs, also known as Terwilliger Hot Springs, which was awesome. But what was a little scary was that, uh, you know, we passed through a bunch of towns on the way because it's far away. And I passed through a town called Nimrod, and I was a little concerned for like the minute and a half that I was in Nimrod, Oregon. Dude, you're a baseline human. You got nothing to worry about there. Oh, I know I'm a baseline human. Don't rub it in. I'm a flat scan. That sucks. Yeah, no, but we are back home now, which is good because the next couple of weeks are kind of an unending frantic sprint of podcast stuff and events. Speaking of which, uh, next week, as you listen to this... We are going to be at Rose City Comic Con. Yes, we told you about that before, but we're really excited about it, so we're going to tell you again, right well, here. Because now it's next week, and it's going to be amazing, and we've got a booth, we're going to be hanging out all weekend with amazing writer and general Mad Wizard of the Marvel Universe, Al Ewing. We have a live panel at noon on Saturday that is going to be the live episode recording. We've got some great panelists. We're going to be joined by Colin Bunn and Greg Pack for that. I don't think either of them's ever actually been on the podcast before. There was a miniature audio interview with Greg a couple years ago, but that was it. I think that's it, yeah, but I'm excited to talk to both of them. They've both written stuff we've really liked. That's true. And also on Saturday in the evening, um, we are going to be throwing a the official, you know, Jay and Miles explain the X-Men party and listener meetup. That's going to be at the steep and thorny way to heaven. It's the same place we did it last year. I believe it's going to be 7 to 11 p.m. on Saturday. You do not need a convention badge to get in, and it is all ages. It was pretty great. I remember last time they had different types of drinks and all the uh, alcoholic drinks were named after X-Men stuff and all the non-alcoholic drinks were named after New Mutant stuff. Yes, Megan and I actually met up again to work out details last week and that is definitely happening again. That's awesome. Because yeah. I mean, my favorite part was meeting listeners, but I'm pretty sure my second favorite part was the cool, clever drink names. It's going to be all ages. We're going to have photo areas again. We're going to have some live stuff. So I talked to Megan about this. We're going to be doing something pretty big there. We are going to be revealing something never before revealed. Never before in the history of mankind. Not a hoax. Not an imaginary story. Well, I mean, actually, kind of. it, we will leave that for attendees to decide. But I will say this. Um, if you remember Dennis Hopeless's explanation of the noodle incident, and if you are one of the folks who has been curious about the true secret recording, you should maybe consider coming to that party. And if you're not, you also should, because it's going to be a great party. It is. And once again, costumes encouraged, children welcome with supervision. 
Adults welcome with supervision, I suppose. Uh, if you have supervision, sort of like Angel does, but all the writers always forget that, then you're especially welcome. Or like Superman um, X-ray vision. Yeah, although you should use that wisely because you could be really uh, invasive toward people's privacy and we don't want that. That is a given. I feel like we have established clearly enough our feelings about, you know, harassment and consent and all of that stuff at social occasions. That should be taken as understood. But yeah, we're going to be at the show all weekend. We will have merch. We've got the live show. I've got three other panels. Um, I'm just going to be at the table. I'm going to be gradually merging with the table until I'm half man, half table. Like that one really freaky monster from Silent Hill 2, except nope. without, without all the screwy, like, psychosexual connotations. Nope. Okay, so I guess I'm not going to do that, but it's no, going to be great. No, I'm going to go do all the crunchy academic panels, and you're going to do the friendly things and hug people. It's and true. high five. I'm Actually, I'll high five, too. I give pretty good high fives. <laughs> you give excellent high fives. I do. And I also do Sharpie knuckle tattoos. So I'm pretty excited about that. But in the meantime, we have some X-Men to tell you about. And boy, howdy, is this a really weird story or what? Spoiler, everyone dies. I mean, or disappears or something. Now, we've taken you through many a milestone issue. There was uh, X-Men number 100, where the X-Men, well, they just got started. But there was X-Men number 150, where they fought Magneto, and it was really cool and climactic. There was number 200, the trial of Magneto, where everything changed. And then there's X-Men 250, where nothing is real and Wolverine gets crucified. It's so weird. Like, this is a big anniversary issue we've come up to. And sure enough, it is a major, major status quo shift. But the way Chris Claremont handles this, it certainly isn't what I would have expected had I been following the book month to month when it was coming out. This arc is so damn weird. It is a big climactic event, but it doesn't feel like it. It's like the precise inverse of an anticlimax, where instead of having a lot of amazing buildup that then falls short, there's a big climactic conclusion built on a very shaky and minimal foundation. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. In the spirit of this arc, mind. Uh, so first, before we go to what happens in the arc, let's do one of my favorite things to say in a dramatic voice. Previously on X-Men. All right, the X-Men are currently living in the Australian outback. They are apparently dead following the fall of the mutants. They went back and met up with some of their counterparts during Inferno and then came back to be miserable some more after two brief issues of gender-segregated and lighthearted adventures. Yeah, so the team has been gradually dwindling, which will greatly accelerate in the issues we cover this episode. So Wolverine left. He had to take care of some unfinished business in his solo series. Oh man, remember the days where when someone had a solo series, they actually made it fit in continuity around the team books they were on? Those were good days. I miss them. On one hand, I miss them. On the other hand, this arc has actually made me reconsider that stance, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later. Interesting. I'm looking forward to hearing about that. So Wolverine is out of town, but he's not gone. He's not off the team. Now, someone who is both gone and off the team is Rogue, because in the issue before, the ones we'll be covering today, she was sucked into the Siege Perilous, the mystical portal given to the X-Men by Roma, the daughter of Merlin, when she resurrected them at the end of Fall of the Mutants. Now, I believe she's technically in the Savage Land being two separate people right now. She will be shortly. We're going to come back to Rogue in a number of issues. And in fact, at the end of this episode, I do want to talk about a, okay, well, when do we see the X-Men next? But for what readers at the time knew, Rogue went through the Siege Perilous, presumably to have her memories erased and start a new life somewhere else, as determined by her Siege Perilous determined karma. So this reminds me, remember when we did the video game pitch contest uh, yeah, ages yeah. and ages ago? It was for the Days of Future Past download codes. We had some really awesome answers to that. Okay, my favorite one was a game called Siege Perilous. Oh, I remember that one. You install it in your phone and it gradually erases and rewrites your entire identity. <laughs> That's so cool. Which isn't fun, but it's a brilliant idea and I want there to be science fiction stories about that. And I always think of that when we come back to the Siege Perilous um, in coverage now. Seriously. But yeah, I mean, this sounds like, oh, Rogue's just gone, whatever. But it's actually super tragic because, I mean, to have your entire identity erased, to have your history rewritten, like, that's basically like death, even if you do survive technically. 
You know, it's interesting that Rogue's the first one it happened to. I didn't think about this at the time, but she's the one of them who's inflicted something very similar on someone else. You know, that's a good point. When she accidentally permanently absorbed Carol Danvers' powers in a fight with Carol, that's kind of the same thing, what she did to Carol. Yeah, it's fairly precisely the same thing. The significant difference is that the Siege Perilous creates new identities for people, which obviously Rogue did not. But that similarity is striking, and it's something that I hadn't considered when she was the first one through it. But yeah, that's worth considering and enough of a parallel that I suspect it might have been a deliberate analogy. Nice work, Chris Claremont, once again. So yes, those things are depressing, but something that's not depressing is the fact that a young mall rat named Jubilation Lee has snuck back with the X-Women from a mall in California to the Outback. So she's been basically living secretly in the X-Men's base, having my element captions in the background whenever the story covers her. And stealing their clothes. And stealing their clothes. So that's basically where we open with Uncanny X-Men number 248, the first of the issues we'll be covering. You know, I kind of want to check in with the individual characters on the team as well before we jump into the story, just because of what this arc represents for them. I feel like having our status quo going in more solid than usual is going to be important. So the team is led at this point by Storm. And Storm got her powers back a little while ago, and she's just sort of been leading the team. She's been probably less traumatized than many of them. Like, she just got to realize that her good buddy Jean Grey was still alive back in Inferno. You know, she's more stable than many of the rest of the X-Men. Co-leading on and off is Wolverine, but again, he has been largely an absentee member of the team because he's fronting his own solo series and running around having adventures in Mad Report and pretending to be Patch. Now, speaking of uh, running around having adventures with Wolverine, Havoc... Oh, oh, Alex Summers. Oh, you poor child. Yeah, Havoc has had a very, very rough time. Really, I mean, for the last many years, but his contact and his tenure with this particular iteration of the X-Men has just been awful. He got sort of conscripted onto the team after they threatened to kill him when he showed up because the brood had attacked his research site. Which he forgot to tell the X-Men about for a very long time. His very serious partner is currently possessed by malice, by an evil force. And during that time, he had a brief budding romance with Madeline Pryor, who used it to mind control him and basically make him into her slave consort when she became the Goblin Queen. And then he and Wolverine went to Mexico, where Havoc promptly got betrayed again by another woman and just sort of has been sliding further and further and further into despair. Um, He killed someone for the first time during this era and got really messed up about it and has just been getting more and more resigned and miserable as this arc progresses. Okay, so let's have a summer's contest here. Whose life is worse, Cyclops or Havoc? You know, I don't think you can make that linear comparison. I think this is the Anacrena thing that every miserable Summers is miserable in their own way. (laughs) Because their fundamental tragedies are very different. Like the fundamental tragedy of Cyclops is that he's never had other options. And the fundamental tragedy of Havoc is that he has and then lost them. Right, because there was that weird thing with the living pharaoh and his powers manifested when they otherwise wouldn't have, and then his life was basically ruined forever. Yeah, no, Havoc's relationship to his own mutation and to superheroism is awful, and it's marked by, among other things, you know, his mutation manifested relatively late in his life, Mm -hmm. which, considering how utterly it changed it, I mean, that's in some ways got to be way worse than dealing with that when you're a teenager and a lot of things are changing anyway. Yeah, I believe it. And, you know, he's ended up, like, Almost all of his decisions to rejoin superhero teams to deal with stuff has been because he lost control of his powers or because he had something taken away that was sort of normal life. 
Yeah, man. It sucks a lot to be everybody. It sucks a lot to be a character in an ongoing superhero comic, really. In general. I mean, you know, thus is the tragedy of fiction. Fiction is made compelling by conflict. And conflict, when you're in a superhero story, tends to be pretty epic and also pretty terrible. But yeah, Havoc's tragedy is that he knows exactly what he's lost. And Cyclops' tragedy is that he never had it to begin with. Well, and speaking of other people who don't know exactly what they've lost... Longshot. So Longshot, of course, came into the X-Men with no memories. Most recently in Inferno, he found himself demonically corrupted by the demon Nastier and did some really not okay stuff and had all these impure motives, which given that his luck powers are based on pure motives, really messed him up. And he's sort of been questioning everything since then. Yeah, for a lot of the X-Men, I think finding out that they had the capacity to become what they became during Inferno really shook their identities and really shook their sense of self. And for Longshot, who's identity and sense of self is very limited, has only existed for a very brief time, that's been catastrophic. Absolutely, yeah. Now, I kind of feel like Dazzler and Psylocke haven't been hit as hard. I mean, Psylocke's certainly gone through some trauma, and Dazzler's gone through some drama, but at the moment, you know, they're kind of weathering these assorted storms better than they could. Yeah, they are characters who are both really good at dealing with shit. And they're characters who I think more than most of the team have had a chance and have deliberately stepped back and sort of assessed their choice and decided that this is where they want to be. Exactly. As much as Dazzler was reluctant for a long time. Yeah. And then there's Colossus, poor, perfect, pure, innocent Piotr Rasputin, who just got to watch his sister become completely corrupted by, you know, hellacious demonic energies, turn into something horribly evil, and then have everything he knew about her from when she was a teenager erased when she regressed into childhood to end Inferno. At which point he had to let go of her again. His life is really terrible. I mean, I think I feel worst of all for him because he's probably, you know, he makes bad decisions. Like, he didn't treat Kitty Pride very well, but his motives are, like, always, always, always good. He's just a good person. Miles, on the scale of bad decisions that the X-Men have made, making bad choices and cheating in an alternate universe on your girlfriend when you're both teenagers and handling that poorly is, I feel like, so far on the, I mean, I... You know, he, he hasn't killed anyone, not counting some marauders, I guess. Well, and Proteus. And Proteus. And that I feel like there was someone else. He hasn't deliberately killed anyone. He hasn't gone out of his way to kill anyone. <laughs> he only kills the people who he meets along the path he's already on. The X-Men got really murdery for a while. They did, it's true. So he is, yeah, you described him as an innocent, and I think that's pretty accurate and pretty true. He is the one of the X-Men who hasn't really slumped into cynicism or who has tried to avoid slumping into cynicism and so seeing him at that point is particularly rough so that's where we open with all eight of our x-men either through the siege perilous having just left for their solo series or dealing with a bunch of trauma in their own various ways i mean storm's basically okay and then there's the cover to x-men 248 right marked by the line of dialogue why havoc why did you kill storm okay i'd like to here reiterate my love of comic book covers with dialogue on them and also get kind of baffled at the fact that, yes, Storm dies in this issue. It's a big climactic thing. And you would put that on the cover? Seriously? Again, the buildup is super, super weird. What this reminds me of most is, like, the covers that are supposed to be a red herring. Right, and it's not a red herring. It's, I mean, okay, technically it is because there's more than we think going on. It is, but, but we're not going to know for a while that it's a red herring. Like, it's not going to get resolved within this issue. We're going to end this issue thinking Storm's still dead. So that's strange. Other things that are strange or at least interesting about this issue, this is the first X-Men issue done by Jim Lee. You may have heard of Jim Lee in that he's one of the most iconic X-Men artists of all time. 
as with many of these guys when they first come on, he's doing something a little closer to house style than usual, but we've definitely got the seeds of his iconic look. These characters are significantly musclier than they were last month. So I've been trying to work out this summer. I've been meeting up in the park with some friends. We've been, you know, exercising. I've been trying to run. Really, I've been wasting my time. I should just be drawn by Jim Lee. That's a way quicker way to get buff. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty much the way to make that rapid change. And of course, then it'd be covered in pouches. But, you know, I will say one thing I really, really appreciate about Jim Lee is that it's basically gender equal buffness. Like all of his characters suddenly look like career athletes. And, you know, that really does make sense. I mean, the X-Men are physically training pretty much constantly. So sure, they'd be in awesome shape. But anyway, this issue opens with Wolverine fighting a bunch of people who should all be familiar faces. These are the Reavers, or at least the new current incarnation of the Reavers. It's both sets of Reavers. That's right, because we have, you know, some of the Reavers we've seen before, so Bonebreaker, Skullbuster, and Pretty Boy. These are the guys who look like mashed up broken action figures, so like the guy whose tank treads from the waist down. I love him. There are a lot of him in the X-Men arcade game. And they're led at this point by Donald Pierce. Now, you may remember Donald Pierce as one of the former inner circle of the Hellfire Club. He was that blonde dude who Wolverine cut his arm one time, and it turns out he really, really hates mutants. Now, we saw this in the New Mutants graphic novel that opened the New Mutants series when he was basically trying to do terrible things to mutants, and he's just become even more of a virulent anti-mutant racist jerk. I think I know why. Why's that? I think it's because after his ejection from the Hellfire Club, they invited in Magneto. And Magneto is a guy who, like Pierce, is all about wearing fuchsia, and he's all about the big, expressive, fancy, flowy capes, and it just reads like a slap in the face. You know, it would have been bad enough to replace him, period, but the fact that they chose the other guy who wears fuchsia capes is just beyond the pale. That makes a lot of it's sense. It's enough to push Pierce over the edge. <laughs> over the edge and to make him reopen the Reavers. Now, we also have Lady Deathstrike. Now, she got all cyborgized by Spiral a while back. Um, she's got a serious mat on for Wolverine. See various previous episodes of this podcast for that. Because the people who turned Wolverine into Wolverine stole adamantium and the bonding process from her father. Right, Lord Darkwind, which is a really great name. Sure. My father's name is just Steve. I mean, that's cool, but that's no Lord Darkwind. I mean, that's just his first name. His last name could be Darkwind. Steve Darkwind. Does that mean that's my last name? I don't know. Because I mean, that would be rad. You should talk to him, see if it's an ancestral thing. Okay, I'll see what I can do. And we also have Macon, Cole, and Reese. Now, I love these guys because they were just three Hellfire guards that Wolverine cut up during the Dark Phoenix saga. Like, they didn't even have names then, but they ended up coming back, which is such a Claremont thing for random little NPC background characters to do. And yet, we still haven't seen Harvey and Janet again. Well, you know, Wolverine didn't cut them up. They knew enough to get the hell out of there. Yeah, but if you're going to bring anyone back, any faceless Hellfire Club characters back... Harvey and Janet deserve it the most. Well, and also, they're at least distinguishable from one another. Like, Macon, Cole, and Reese, I can never tell which is which. They have no distinguishing characteristics between the three of them. That's racist. Is it? No. Oh, well, good, because I was worried for a second there. No, it's because, and, and especially, you know, now that they have cyborg -y faces, they're just kind of three dudes. They are. They're three cyborg -y dudes. They might have different cyborg parts, but yeah, I've never really bothered trying to tell them apart. They are the double dragon protagonists of... Those guys have names. It's like Jimmy something and Billy something. I haven't actually played Double Dragon. I don't care enough. I'm sorry. Well, or Contra. That's reasonable, I suppose. I didn't grow up playing side-scrollers or those games, so I have none of those reflexes. And for me to actually power through one of those games, I have to really want it. I have played Mega Man 2. I have beaten Mega Man 2. And I feel like with that under my belt, I can go on with my life. 
If I can ever beat the original Ninja Gaiden, I will be so satisfied. But I've never done it. I fought that last boss so many times. You know what happens if you beat that, right? The world ends? No, it's Last Starfighter style. Like, they come and get you and make you go be a ninja. I would be a terrible ninja. I'm really loud. Don't beat Ninja Gaiden. Okay, it's probably for the best. It is. But we digress. So, yes, these Reavers have been training against, of course, a robot version of Wolverine, which I gotta say is very, like, well done for just a robot that they're gonna kill. I like that, of course, you dropped in. Well, you know, that's how these things work. Do Um, you think they got it from Arcade? You know, they might have made a deal with Arcade, yeah. If he can guess which one's Macon, which one's Cole, and which one is Reese, then they'll give him a million dollars. Otherwise, he has to give them a robot Wolverine. Okay, so Cole always lies, Macon always tells the truth, and Reese likes big butts and can't lie. (laughs) Perfect. Canon. So, yes, they are all talking about how they're going to kill the X-Men, and they will, of course, be a big deal going forward. Meanwhile, however, Longshot has some other weird shit going on. He's been dreaming, and actually, dreams factor really heavily into this part of the X-Men story. Dreams factor in sufficiently heavily that it's almost, that there are times where it's really difficult to tell what is and isn't a dream, and there are points where dreams intersect with reality, and this, it is heavily hinted, is happening because of Gateway. Right. Gateway has teleportation powers, but he also has slightly uncomfortable, based on his ethnicity and background powers, which is to say he can bring people into the aboriginal concept of dream time. We did not talk about Gateway when we were going through the X-Men's lineup because he is at this point affiliated with the X-Men, but not officially part of the team. He is a dude who the X-Men kind of inherited along with the Reaver base or who decided to stick around. The Reavers were forcing him to teleport them around. They were basically coercing him into it. And when the X-Men kicked the Reavers out, Gateway decided he was going to stick around. He was going to help them. And also bring them into various dreams at times, apparently. Yeah. How much this is deliberate and how much of events Gateway is manipulating and how much of a beat he has on the future is never quite clear. His powers are really nebulous in this era. So in Longshot's dream, he is in a tuxedo, dancing with Dazzler as the X-Men play orchestrally in the background. And I'm kind of wondering what logic went into which X-Men is playing which instrument. All right, so we've got Colossus on double bass, Storm on flute, I believe Havoc on bassoon. Havoc seems like a bassoon kind of guy. Does he? He seems like the guy who'd get stuck playing bassoon because he wanted to play something else, but there weren't enough bassoon players. And so... And so the living pharaoh just handed him a bassoon whether he wanted to play it or not? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Okay, that makes sense. A lot of people end up playing bassoon that way. Like, I feel like that is how that section gets populated in a lot of especially junior high school bands where there are a million flautists and a million saxophonists and nothing else. Freaking living pharaoh. Right. And we have Psylocke on the harp and Wolverine on the viola. He's the best there is at what he does, and what he does is play the viola. Okay, to be fair, the viola is a really difficult instrument to play, and it's one where a healing factor would be extremely, extremely helpful, because they were originally made to be played uh, vertically in your lap, and they're really heavy, and like violists have a really, really high rate of repetitive motion and professional strain injuries, to the point that there's a person, like an instrument master maker, who designed violas that are more ergonomic and still get good sound and has like a 20-year wait list of professional musicians whose shoulders are gradually falling off. Come for the X-Men knowledge, stay for the classical music knowledge. Yeah. Jay Miles explained the X-Men. Instruments aside, Longshot and Dazzler are dancing, and Rogue, who's been competing with Dazzler for Longshot's affections, sort of, comes up to join them, and she and Dazzler merge into a single person. And then Ricochet Rita, the stunt woman that Longshot met during his limited series, shows up and merges in there too, and this leads to one of my favorite little bits of accidental foreshadowing in this era, which is that we have Ricochet Rita with, you know, her normal Ricochet Rita arms, but also two other sets of arms from Dazzler and Rogue sticking out of her side. We'll later learn, like a year or two later, that Ricochet Rita ends up becoming Spiral in the future, who then travels back in time to fight Longshot. At the time, I believe this was not intended. It was just a nice little visual effect 
to set it up for them to dreamlike morph into Spiral. This is also, in my entire history as a comics reader, the only time I have ever looked at a scene and thought, I would really like to have seen this drawn by Greg Land. Because of the faces looking the same thing? Because of the women merging and sort of morphing into one another. <laughs> I suppose, yeah. Like, I feel like that's a concept that would be really well suited to everything I hate about his art style. <laughs> but Ricochet Rita does in fact turn into Spiral and rip out Longshot's spine, making him one of the spineless ones, the race of oppressors in the Mojoverse, at which point he fires his own little throwing blades out of his weird scorpion mojo tail and kills all of the aforementioned women in his life, all of whom die one by one. Longshot has terrible dreams. He does, and Longshot, his identity has been sufficiently shaken up that having this dream is enough to push him over the edge. He decides that he needs to leave the X-Men, he needs to get his shit together. And I love the way this manifests, because Storm awakens, presumably in dream time. I don't really love the way she describes it, though, as she's figuring out where she is, because she asks Gateway if he pulled her into dream time, quote, in the manner of your aboriginal people. It's like, dude, Storm, come on, don't assume that just because he's aboriginal, he has mystical dream time powers. But we know for a fact that he has mystical dream time powers. That's been established previously. Well, right, but in the manner of your aboriginal people? Come on, Aloro. Yeah, we've talked a lot about Gateway and Gateway's cultural context and lack of cultural context, and the extent to which neither of us is really qualified to go into that in great depth, but the extent to which it sits very uneasily. Yeah, I feel pretty uncomfortable with that whole thing. But regardless, this does lead to a really cool scene where Storm suddenly sees a transparent version of Longshot picking through the rubble on the hill on which they sit and finding body parts that he then overlaps with his ghostly form to slowly rebuild himself. And it's such a cool visual metaphor, him like just trying to pick up the pieces and find little parts to see what fits to see who he really is, both because he doesn't remember his past, sure, but also because he hasn't really been able to construct an identity of his own since coming to Earth this time around, since the last reset of his memories. When Storm asks him what he's doing, he tells her that he's... Searching for myself, of course. Everyone I touch, everything, too, has a history. A sense of where it came from and why it was created. But not me. Too many holes for a person to be whole. There has to be more of me somewhere. I guess I'd better go find it. I don't want to leave, Storm. You're my friends. But I can't be your friend till there's an all of me to be. Aww. And they hug, and that's it. Longshot is gone. He leaves off camera. We just have this weird metaphorical, mystical meeting of him and Storm, of them saying goodbye, and Longshot's not going to show up as a member of the X-Men ever again. He'll appear in continuity again quite a number of times, but that's it for his short, weird tenure on this team of mutants. Meanwhile, on the physical plane, Nanny and the Orphan Maker have come to call. Okay, now I know we've talked in previous episodes how we like Nanny and the Orphan Maker, whose whole deal is that they kidnap children and take care of them, and usually murder their parents in the process. How we like them more than a lot of readers do, but I gotta say, they have totally overstayed their welcome. They keep showing up in this era. Their last X-Factor appearance would have been a good closing point for them, and for their arc in this, the one where you learn more about both of their backstories, and their ship gets destroyed, and they barely make it out alive. I feel like they should have gone away for a while, rather than popping immediately back up here. But in fact, as predicted by the last panel of the last issue, they are going to try to save the X-Men from the Reavers who they know are going to attack them by kidnapping them and, you know, turning them into kids and thus saving them. Yeah, Nanny implied that she had a plan for doing that. And the first X-Men we see her do this to is Psylocke, although I don't think she actually physically transformed Psylocke at this point. I think it's just in Psylocke's mind. Right. Yeah, it's a really cool visual effect because we see Betsy as Nanny is luring her out of the pool she's swimming in. So we see Psylocke, with each step she takes, turn more and more into a child. And this happens, in fact, to some of the other X-Men. 
as Nanny basically kidnaps them, mentally de-ages them, and seals them inside big robot suits, kind of reminiscent of the one worn by the orphan maker. Well, and the one that she stuck Franklin Richards into. Yes, there was that one time as well. Apparently she's got a lot of them. You know, if you're good at a thing, you should make sure you have the supplies to do that thing. So here's something interesting. The X-Men still believe that Nanny is a robot. They don't realize that she's a person within her suit, because Psylocke can't read her mind and figures that that's why. So yeah, she takes down each of the X-Men in different ways, mostly with Psylocke's help. She manages to catch Havoc and Dazzler as they are out jogging, which is the point where I went back and went, oh yeah, this is a Jim Lee issue. Oh, they're just so buff. They are so buff, and Dazzler is so tan. That's actually something that's pretty cool in this era, is that every issue she's colored a little bit more tan, because of course Allison Blair, if she was stuck out in the Outback, would totally be working on her tan as much as possible. She might be officially dead now, but she's going to get back on the pro circuit, and that Zonker Harris better watch out. (laughs) Deep cut. Nice. Having sealed the X-Men in these robot suits, Nanny has them attack the rest of the team. And, you know, there's a big fight. And it doesn't go well for Nanny and the Orphan Maker. They try to escape, pursued by a very dramatic and declaiming storm, at which point Havoc breaks free of the programming, having been ripped out of his robot suit, and in his disorientation, shoots down Nanny's spaceship, and Storm with it, and Storm is dead. We see the body in the crashed ship, smoking and charred. I mean, Aurora Monroe, for all intents and purposes, is gone. Oh, she'll be fine. She'll just come back as a space whale or something. (laughs) Right. But no, it's super weird because like we were saying, it's on the cover right there. So you expect there's going to be some kind of twist. And there's not. Havoc shoots down the ship that she's entangled with and she's dead. So that's another X-Man down in a really weird, abrupt twist of fate. So what do you do when the heart of your team dies suddenly and unexpectedly in a horrible accident killed by another member of the same team? You go to the fucking Savage Land for an adventure. Yeah, this is a big climactic issue coming up, you know. We're on issue number 249, which happens right after Storm's death. And so you'd think that we'd bring back some kind of climactic villain or have like a big metaphor or a great turning point. Or spend like two pages on the fact that Storm just died and she's, you know, the longest running member of the team and basically it's heart, soul and primary leader and everyone's really close to her. And they've also lost a whole bunch of people recently, but she's the first of them to actually physically die after the whole Siege Perilous thing. And you'd think it would be a pretty big deal, right? But it's handled very strangely because while we do see the X-Men burying her, erecting a monument on a screen in the background of the monitor room of of the Reaver base, our perspective is just with Havoc. Havoc and his two-day beard of grief, drinking a Foster's and drawing on the table. Okay, the X-Men have this fucking table with portraits of all of their faces at their seats. It's like the round table, but with place cards, but not with words, with pictures. Instead, it's like a picture menu for who sits where. You know, Storm's changed her costume a few times since they've gotten here. So Madeline Pryor was the one that designed the table. So yeah, you have to wonder if like every time Storm gets a haircut, she's like, oh God, now I have to redraw that part again. Damn it, Aurora. I assume that she'd get Colossus too. Colossus is the artist. It's true. But yeah, so Havoc is just Xing out all of the faces of the dead X-Men. So on the one hand, this is really comical. It's incredibly comical. But at the same time, like it's really morbid. And I mean, the dialogue totally echoes that morbidity. Thanks a lot, Roma, for bringing us back just so we can get killed all over again. Hope it was worth the effort. Hope it's as much fun for you, babe, as it is for us. And he's furious with Wolverine. He's, of course, furious with himself. Like, Alex Summers, he's kind of gone at this point. It seems like he's just sort of been broken by the world. Yeah, Havoc has been having a bad day for about six months at this point. And he zaps all the hardware. He just shoots plasma at all the computers in rage, which, of course, then blow up because they're computers and it's a comic book. And he is knocked unconscious. 
he is not the only one working through some frustration. We see the Reavers watching the X-Men, and the one they're watching in particular is Colossus, who is smashing his paintings and easel and just abandoning them in the desert. And I actually really love Deathstrike's analysis of the situation here. There is a growing evolution in Peter Rasputin's work, as though he was being consumed by fury. See the violence of form and content? Life is a torment for him. Not even death is a release, merely the prelude to greater tortures. There is no joy left in him. So is she just describing the plot of the X-Books at this point? Yeah, basically, but I do like Lady Deathstrike art critic. Right, seriously. But I, also Lady Deathstrike's psychologist, because it makes sense that she would have that kind of keen observation when it comes to people's, like, internal torment. That's basically been her life for years now. What I am curious about, because I was not paying close attention to that detail the first time I read through this, is how this particular set of pictures is going to contrast or compare with the stuff he first produces as Peter Nicholas after he's gone through the Siege of Perilous. Yeah, when we get to that part in an upcoming episode, we should definitely look at those like picture by picture. Yeah, because all of the X-Men, when they go through the Siege of Perilous at the end of this arc, are going to get new identities, and Colossus is specifically going to be a visual artist. In the meantime, while these X-Men are, you know, beating themselves up or just being really furious or freaked out or frustrated, a character we haven't seen in a very long time picks up a payphone and tries to call Havoc. Which really does beg the question, how did anyone get Havoc's number? Also, why does Havoc have his own phone number here? I mean, this was like 1989-1990. That didn't really happen very often. They're invisible to electronic surveillance, but this is back in the 80s where the phone lists were physical, where you just look them up in the white pages. Okay, so they were uh, unable to be tracked by the media or cameras or sensors, but they were in the phone book. No, this makes absolutely no sense at all. Well, regardless, the character in question is Polaris. Longtime previous X-Man, Havoc's main squeeze, and currently possessed by the marauder Malice also currently possessed of the greatest hair of all time. It's huge and green and amazing. Yeah, man, I love Polaris's hair during this era. It's so ridiculous. And so uh, she leaves a voicemail talking about how she's finally breaking free of Malice ever since Malice's boss, Mr. Sinister, was killed at the end of Inferno, and she needs help. Unfortunately, the person she's trying to call, Havoc, is unconscious, having blown up all the computers, but he awakens to flowers and a note, question mark, query. Yeah, saying that she's called, because Jubilee at this point, in addition to stealing the X-Men stuff, has apparently been working part-time as their secret secretary. Which I really enjoy, and it makes sense because Jubilee, as we saw in that one Uncanny X-Men annual recently, she just wants friends. She just really wants the X-Men to like her, but she's super shy and scared that they'll kick her out if they find her. Well, and she's also pretty bored. That too, so, you know, carrying Alex Summers is around is a good way to break the monotony. Or at least taking messages. <laughs> but the person that Alex sees when he wakes up is not Jubilee. It is, in fact, Psylocke, who's been getting sort of more and more creepy as time has gone on. I mean, she seems very well adjusted, but she's wearing the armor more and more. She's always got that hood over her face. She's always drawn all shadowed. And she just seems kind of, I don't know, like she's got a lot she's not saying. So, for instance, Havoc points out, Armor's a good metaphor for you, Psylocke. It hides a lot more than just your body. And he's also kind of weirded out by the fact that she's basically assumed leadership, apparently, since Storm died. To which she responds, you know, if you can find someone better, I'm gone. But she's, yeah, she's stepped up because there's nobody else. Now, Psylocke isn't always the most easily defined X-Man. Like, you have Wolverine's growly rage. You have uh, Rogue's tragedy, but also optimism in the face of that tragedy. With Psylocke, she doesn't have as clear of an elevator pitch. But if you remember, we have seen something consistent as time has gone on, which is that she's got a heart of steel underneath that like traditionally feminine, traditionally soft appearance, and that really comes through in this era. 
You know, you said that she's difficult to sum up in an elevator pitch, and I think that's more so the case later. For me, she is the character who has powers, who's not an intuitive superhero, and who steps up and embraces the identity because she wants it, because she cares about it, and because she believes in taking action if she can. I guess that's true, yeah. I mean, when she first joined the X-Men, she had that conversation with Captain Britain, and the uh, eventual resolution was, yes, I do want to be part of the team. Well, and when she first took up the mantle of Captain Britain. Way back in the day, This has been consistent in her character since her inception, pretty much. This has always been what Psylocke did, and it's always been who she is. You know, I kind of want to segue briefly, speaking of getting a good beat on the character. She and Havoc are the two who I feel like Jim Lee doesn't quite have in this. He does a great job with most of the cast. Most of them are very recognizable as the same characters. Sylvester's been drawing the same characters we know well. You know, they're very, very distinctive. They've got their own body language. They've got their own faces. And Psylocke and Havoc don't quite. Yeah, I would agree. And of course, you know, Psylocke will look pretty different soon and Havoc will be gone for quite a while. So less of an issue, I suppose, coming up. But yeah, Havoc and Psylocke don't have too much time to talk about how creepy Psylocke is because uh, they find out where Polaris is. They go after her. She is in Chile, so the team is off to go find her. Now, Polaris, she's having her wounds treated by the locals because she's getting kind of beaten up, and they're being all cool and uh, nice and hospitable when all of a sudden barbarians riding dinosaur ostriches, as traditionally happens in Chile, I'm assuming. And in fact, these are dudes from the Savage Land, led by Zaladane, a villain who we'll talk more about in a second, but who um, really probably isn't a good candidate for big iconic conflict of the 250th issue. So as these ostriches are attacking and the X-Men, you know, show up and fight, and, you know, Havoc is getting super creepy at this point. Like, he totally fries one of those weird dino ostriches with his plasma blasts and doesn't even care, and that's a jerk move, Havoc. Well, he's getting really cavalier about killing being a necessity. He has gone from reluctantly accepting the role to just utter resignation, which, given his powers in his case, means, you know, frying ostrich dinosaurs. <laughs> oh, man, that, that's when you can tell somebody is really gone, when they fry an ostrich dinosaur. But yeah, in addition to the barbarians, the other baddies that show up at this point are the mutates, who are a group of sort of mutated humans from the Savage Land that first showed up way back in the Silver Age when Magneto decided to mutate some dudes, which was a kind of weird story. Using magnetism, presumably. I mean, you know, and the inherent radiation of the Savage Land, but I'm assuming magnetism factored in pretty heavily. And a bunch of big fancy machines, and basically they are the relics of a plot line that should never have been because it's dumb as hell. Although one time they did turn Angel into a bird monster and Spider-Man into a spider monster. That was pretty cool. It would have been cooler if they'd stayed. If Angel had just been a bird monster for like the rest of time. Right. He never would have had to be Archangel, which would have been unfortunate, or an actual angel, which I would have been okay with that not happening. No, no. See, if he'd been a weird bird monster, both of those would have been even more awesome. (laughs) You do make a compelling argument that's true. I could have lived with actual Angel Angel if he had just been squawking the whole time. See, now I'm just imagining Big Bird from Sesame Street, but with like, you know, almost sentient organic metal wings firing out poison-tipped flechettes and talking about how terrible his life was. Vivid mental image, right? And then Jane never talked again. So anyway, there is a big fight. Eventually, we do find out that it is, in fact, yes, generic villain Zaladane who's leading these troops. Now, she claims that she's getting revenge on this town for an oil spill that happened, but we quickly find out that she's actually there for Polaris. And Jay, why is Zaladane there for Polaris? You broke me, man. I'm still on the Big Bird thing. (laughs) You have a job to do, dude. Okay, fine. Like Psylocke, I will rise to the occasion. I will use my powers to tell you that Zaladane is after Polaris because she's decided they're sisters because Dane is the last half of both of their names, despite the fact that Zaladane doesn't really have a last name. Like, she's just Zaladane, like Cher or whatever. And Polaris's name is Lorna Space Dane. 
I feel like this is like if we had decided that our producer and Catwoman are related because, you know, his first name is Kyle and her last name is Kyle. And so obviously they're family. Clearly, yeah. Saladin is really confusing. She's also just a sort of strange generic villain. She was a former priestess of Garrock, the petrified man. Wait, who? Uh, yeah, so you remember that guy? He showed up, he was in the Savage Land, Storm accidentally killed him, and then it turned out he got better later on, and it was weird. I remember him being trapped in, like, a robot suit in the Evolutionary War. He's not very memorable, and neither is she. She was also the priestess of the Sun People in the Savage Land. Now, we most recently saw her actually working with the High Evolutionary during the Evolutionary War, teamed up with the Mutates. So, you know, it does follow that after the High Evolutionary fell, she would still be working with the Mutates and still doing stuff in the Savage Land. But this is just so random for her to show up. Like, who was clamoring for the return of Zaladane? Yeah, Zaladane is just baffling here. This is the part of the plot that's weird. This is the part that just feels like it's randomly suddenly tossed in to what was actually happening. It's the just, meanwhile, in another dimension stuff and things and Zaladane and she's got a machine that transfers Polaris's powers to her kind of but it also makes Polaris like super big and buff and strong and this storyline makes zero sense it's true but she does successfully kidnap Polaris she does successfully hold the town hostage I do enjoy that she um keeps Polaris unconscious with a black lotus she happens to have because I gotta say that's like worth so much if she could keep it in mint or near mint like she wouldn't have to take anything over she could just retire by selling that black lotus Yeah, obviously she doesn't really observe house rules. Although, you know, you'd think that to use the powers of the Black Lotus, she'd then have to sacrifice it. She wouldn't be able to keep reusing it. Yeah, well, you know, I think it's either restricted or banned these days anyway. I'm sorry, I played a lot of Magic the Gathering back in the day, and I successfully quit after my fourth quitting attempt. So I'm very proud of that, but it's still in my blood. It's still in my bones. So Zaladane leaves, uh, having done a prisoner exchange. She lets the people go in exchange for her barbarians getting returned to her. But in the meantime, Havoc has put on one of the silly barbarian hats and infiltrated her army. And the next we see of her in our milestone 250th issue is her fortress burrowing up through an Antarctic base and killing a lot of people who don't even get the chance to have little tragic backstories before they die Claremont style. They get slight little tragic backstories. They're at Soviet research base and they're excited about movies. But more importantly, I want to discuss the fact that Havoc's strategic means of escalation is to find an even dumber hat. You know, I hadn't thought about that. You're right. That's how he infiltrates Zaladane's army. By instead of wearing his like dumb Havoc hat, by wearing an even dumber like giant tall helmet pokey bullet thing. Alex Summers is a man who knows his strengths and works with them. Unfortunately, he doesn't know his weaknesses. Oh, stay away from redheads, Alex. Just stay away from them. It doesn't go well. And so, yes, I do want to read this narration, though, right here, because, you know, if you're going to have a milestone issue, you need to open it with some awesome narration. This is the cruelest season on the cruelest continent on Earth. The cruelest planet. Well, it doesn't say that, but it should. Where the sun doesn't shine for six months of the year, and temperatures can reach 90 below zero centigrade, and catabatic winds of better than 300 kilometers per hour create a wind chill that defies comprehension. By rights, the few unprotected survivors should have perished from exposure within a matter of heartbeats. But an energy field radiating from the tower makes the local environment endurable, and thus spares them, sadly, for a far more terrible fate to come. Man, Encyclopedia Britannica's upped its game. <laughs> Claremont should totally write the encyclopedia. Yeah, so uh, Zaladane just enslaves people and kills people, and she's terrible. And Alex is like, okay, I gotta do something, I gotta, I gotta do something, because he doesn't act quickly enough to save some of these surviving scientists— And is quickly beaten down by Zaladane's army because, of course, they knew he was Havoc because the guy in the dumb hat clearly is Alex Summers. Well, the guy in the dumb hat, who they don't recognize among their fairly small group and who's a dude who they've actually fought before, 
And they captured Polaris while she was trying to call him. And it's like, come on, you're not subtle, bro. You're not subtle. But yeah, he's forced to watch Polaris hooked up to this giant machine that Zaladane has adapted from the high evolutionary's old technology. His transmutator, specifically. Yes, as Polaris is seemingly disintegrated before Alex's eyes. And like, you know, the narration's super epic and stuff. But is this earned? I mean, this just sort of comes out of nowhere. We haven't seen Polaris for ages, let alone as a hero. Zaladane hasn't been a villain of any import ever. It's just so weird. And Zaladane is theoretically using this machine to steal Polaris's powers, which she can nominally do because they're sisters, but that doesn't make any sense. Like, I'm still having trouble wrapping my head around both what this is supposed to do and what it actually ends up doing. This is just nonsense. Oh, well, you're an only child, Jay. You, you wouldn't understand. You know, that's what you said about the Lannisters, too. Oh, oh, no. Why? Sorry, I've been saving that burn for like three years. Oh, that's terrible. But anyway, so they head to their fortress. They, you know, enslave people through the use of this mutate named Worm, who's got these creepy, like, little suction cup ooze-secreting hands that coats people in ooze, and then he can control them, and it's super gross. Yeah, he gets them super slimy, and then he can mind-control them. I think it's just they feel so gross that they can't think enough to resist. They just stand there going, ew, ew. And the X-Men, who, you know, are following along, they're not having a very good day either, because Psylocke, as she sees all these horrors happening telepathically, just strips off her armor and dives into a nearby lake, so I suppose, uh, take a drink. Wait, wait, didn't she have, like, a long romantic relationship with Angel later? Yes. Do you think it was based on, like, their mutual instinctual just, like, pulling off clothing at points of an intense crisis? Oh, right, because there's that one time at the beginning of X-Factor where he took off his shirt and flew through an airport. Yeah, do you think they just get kicked out of a lot of airports together? I feel like they probably do. But she starts swimming, and then Colossus, suddenly against his will, starts trying to drown her, and it's all very confusing and strange and not good. Colossus is not being mind-controlled, because Psylocke tries to stop him that way. What's happening is that Zaladane, who has to some extent successfully managed to absorb Polaris's magnet powers, which raises, again, a whole other set of questions, is just controlling his body, is forcing him to throttle Psylocke. And so Worm sneaks up during this, and the X-Men are all variously subdued. What's interesting is that Psylocke sort of wakes up in a weird dream state in the outback town that the X-Men live in. And she is assuming that it is her death vision as her brain dies, it's something she's seen in others and what she sees is a scene of absolute carnage, the X-Men chained up, slaughtered, crucified. She sees a version of herself who's replaced largely with cybernetic parts like a Reaver. And she realizes that, no, what she's actually seeing is a premonition of the X-Men's impending death. And this is a nice little callback to the old Marvel UK days, because originally Betsy wasn't a telepath. She had instead limited precognitive abilities. And in her vision, she sees Gateway bound and gagged. He holds up the siege perilous to her, the tiny shrunk down version of it, offering it to her as either a warning or a way out. She doesn't yet know which. And she wonders if this is him pulling her into dream time to warn her of something coming. Now, when she wakes up, she unfortunately is back in the Savage Land in this very strange storyline as Zaladin has brought her prisoners, which now include uh, Kazar and Shanna the She-Devil and Nereel, Colossus's ex-girlfriend from the Savage Land. Like, she's pulled all the real significant Savage Land characters here. Well, she's gotten the X-Men, too. While Psylocke was hallucinating, apparently what the X-Men did was go off and capture every character who we've seen living in the Savage Land. Not, however, Rogue, who is somewhere else there, which we'll find out later. Well, that'll be much later. But it's really a dick move because Zaladin magnetically controls Colossus and tries to have him kill the little boy who he doesn't know is his son with Nereel from the time the X-Men were in the Savage Land. And like, lady, that's not okay. I mean, murder's not great, but forcing a dude to kill the son he doesn't even know is his son, that's like super not great. Yeah, the son who we found out was his son on a giant civilization that rides around on the back of a huge flying wolf in another dimension. 
X-Men, ladies and gentlemen, X-Men. God damn, the Savage Land is silly. And so there's more creepiness nearby because Havoc and Polaris are chained up in the basement being watched over by the various mutates. Wait, wait. So Polaris, this is actually better than it could have been because the last time we saw Polaris, she'd apparently been disintegrated. Right. It turns out she wasn't disintegrated at all. She was just depowered. Well, apparently depowered because the mutates have it in for her and Havoc. They really want to kill these guys. They're debating about whether Zaladin will mind as Polaris breaks free of her bonds and discovers that she has gotten super tall and buff and strong. And so she kicks the crap out of the mutates and then romantically kisses the still-chained-up Havoc in a nice little gender reversal of a traditional action movie scene. But yes, Polaris is now super strong and invulnerable to bullets and really tall, and that certainly is a thing that happened. So she frees Havoc... They come in, they rescue the other X-Men. Lorna is at this point able to go toe-to-toe with the still-controlled Colossus. Zaladane is effectively subdued. Havoc manages to blast her through a wall. She blocks the damage that his last would have done, but not the force, so it just propels her out of the fortress. See, this is what you get when you absorb somebody's powers without studying up. You can't use them right. You should know better, Zaladane. You should have studied this in the many times you were off-panel because you're not a significant enough X-Men villain. Yeah, and um, Havoc tries to destroy the tower, but fails, and the X-Men ponder their next move because Zaladane is still leading her mutates and she's powerful, and they should probably rise against her, and Psylocke figures since her death vision was all in the outback, if they stay in the Savage Land, they'll be safe, but oh, suckers, Gateway teleports them back anyway. Okay, so this part is really weird. We don't really find out why Gateway brought the X-Men back to the outback, especially given all the terrible things waiting for them. It just sort of happens. So I have a theory about this. Okay. And my theory is that Gateway's actual power is narrative propulsion. So basically he does whatever is necessary for the story to go in the direction that the writer wants the story to go? Mm-hmm. Gateway's mutant powers are a tautology. I'm not satisfied with if that answer. If Gateway does it, it's because it's a narrative necessity. And the fact that Gateway does it means it's a narrative necessity. But I like characters to have motivations that make sense. And Gateway's motivations make no sense here. What if he's a fourth wall breaker? So it's him and She-Hulk and Deadpool and Sarah from Angela Asgard's Assassin. Yeah. While that would make an excellent ensemble book, I'm not buying it. Oh, no, no, it's complete bullshit, but it's the only viable explanation I can think of for everything that he does. Well, regardless, that's the end of X-Men number 250. So we now have our four X-Men. We have Psylocke, Havoc, Dazzler, and Colossus. They're back in the outback, and they're not the protagonists of X-Men number 251. No, that would be Wolverine. Now, this issue is significant for a couple of reasons. Uh, First, because the cover of Wolverine on a big X-shaped cross is an homage to a notable Conan illustration. And second, because this is actually the end of the X-Men collection that my father gave me in that big long box. This is the last issue in the run that he had. So it's been nice, and we really appreciate you listening for all 124 episodes of the podcast. And um, we hope that you have fun going on with your lives, as we presumably will as well. But this is it. This is the end, right? (laughs) I mean, this is the end, I must admit, of me being this familiar with all these comics. Because after this, I've read most of what comes after, but not nearly as like obsessively as I read the run that ends with this issue. So I'm probably going to get stuff wrong. Listeners are going to have even more of a chance to um, actually us. It's going to be great. Yeah, this is where we will be making the shift from the stuff that both of us have reread and reread and reread and reread because we had those copies on hand for so long. Right. This is where we will be going not into uncharted waters, but perhaps waters not quite as thoroughly charted. 
Exactly. So we'll just crash into a bunch of sunken stuff. It's going to get real ugly. The podcast will jostle to a stop very abruptly. No, no, Miles, this is X-Men. We'll get attacked by a giant squid or possibly also octopus. Oh, good point. Well, we need to make sure that we have our Ruby Quartz visor connected to its hood in the hold of the ship so we can put it on and look really funny without wearing a shirt while wearing that. And also our little tiny jean shorts. And then we'll end up an octopus time and it'll get super weird. No, you're, 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 you're mixing up stories. Oh, right. Cyclops has had so many terrible nautical adventures. Poor really, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's a point for Cyclops having a worse life than Havoc. One point right there. Yeah, but he also, like, his quote-unquote awful nautical adventures also involved, like, hanging out and hooking up with Lee Forrester and, like, brief idyllic periods of non-crisis. So. Ooh, good point. Uh, minus one to Cyclops' terrible life. Well, yeah. regardless. Also, he's not the only one who gets attacked by giant octopuses. Like, that's a common thing. Anytime you go in the water in the Marvel Universe, pretty much. The, the new mutants have dealt with that. Like, they're just everywhere. But regardless, we're not in the water right now. We're in the outback again because Wolverine is, in fact, tied to a big X-shaped cross and being tortured by Pierce and the Reavers. So we just sort of open up in media's rest. And one of the things I really love about X-Men 251, which is a pretty awesome issue, is that it cuts back and forth through the timeline of the events of the issue but also has a bunch of Dreamtime-style visions into the past and even into the future. It's a very surreal, dreamlike issue as Wolverine is, you know, hallucinating from the pain he's being put through. And as contrasted to the issues that precede it, that contrast in the flow in and out of reality is actually handled really artfully and effectively in 251. I like this issue a lot. But yeah, I mean, he keeps hallucinating like the X-Men showing back up and then the ones who have disappeared during his absence kind of fading out of the way, himself included. He sees Betsy turn into a weird cyborg and kill Gateway and start ripping her own face off. And underneath the face is Sabretooth, who talks about how only he gets to kill Logan. And I mean, it just keeps going as Wolverine just sees person shift into person shift into person. I mean, we know this is a narrative technique Chris Claremont enjoys. We just saw it recently in Longshot's own dream. But damn, if it isn't effective as hell here, and damn, if Sylvester doesn't do a kick-ass job. And it's something that fits actually both Longshot and Wolverine particularly well, because they're characters whose memories are messes, for whom those interrelationships are more nebulous and hazier than they are for most of their peers. Now, we find out also what has actually happened to Logan, which is that he came back to Australia, went to a bar, and was promptly ambushed by a bunch of reavers with adamantium harpoons. I actually really enjoy the fact that this backstory that they lead up to is just, I went into a bar and then got my ass kicked. And that's basically it. Yep. But what Logan does see in real life is the X-Men teleporting back to the Outback suddenly and some really weird stuff going on. That whole opposite of an anticlimax we were talking about yeah, this is the biggest example of that happening. So we've got, I think, from Havoc, one of the best summations of the absolutely bleak state that they've ended up in. I mean, look at us. Rogue zapped through the siege perilous to heaven knows what fate. Longshot quit. Storm dead. And who knows where Wolverine is these days? More concerned with his own life, I guess, than ours. How can we even call ourselves a team anymore? Just four of us left living out in the middle of nowhere. What good are we to anyone? How does this further Professor Xavier's dream? Remember the one that brought us all together? Of a better world where mutant and human can live together in peace? Listen to me, mutant and human. As though being the one precluded the other. It's like we perpetuate the prejudice even as we try to fight it. I gotta say, that speech right there, in addition to just showing the absolute nadir of despair the X-Men are at at this point in the storyline, also does kind of presage his controversial M-Day speech in Uncanny Avengers. Like, that didn't come out of nowhere. Remender really did his homework. Whether or not you agree with the speech, at least it's consistent for Havoc. Yeah, Havoc's needed to shut the fuck up about human-mutant relations for a really long time. And so, Psylocke 
pulls out the Siege Perilous and has the little hand-mirror-sized version of it grow to a full-sized portal and starts convincing the X-Men to go through one by one. Yeah, she's convincing them at first, and it starts out looking like they're doing it by choice. They're effectively, you know, killing themselves. They are deciding to step through this and cease to be as the people they were. Right. And for no good reason. I mean, it's clear that Psylocke is giving them little telepathic pushes, but it's tragic as hell. It's brief, it's surreal, it's nightmarish, but it's tragic as hell. There's not no good reason, because she knows at least that if they stay there, they're going to die. This is, as she sees it, the only alternative. It's the only option that's left to them. But they don't know, and they go through anyway. So we have Colossus, for instance, saying, Will we meet again in our new lives? Their new lives, Tovarish. Anything is possible. Dasvidanya, Elizabeth. Farewell, Pyotr Nikolovich Rasputin. And then Dazzler comments on how weird it is that when Peter was basically ending his life, he didn't even comment on his sister or his family that he'd be abandoning. And then she goes through as well. She's still suspicious. She doesn't know what's happening. But she walks through the portal. And Havoc is the last one. Once again, he's been suspecting that Psylocke's been more in their heads lately. And he tells her that again. And she says, no, no, it's your own choice and kisses him and, you know, lets him go through the portal. Finally, the Reavers appear and Psylocke smiles and tells them, you'll kill no X-Men today and heads back through herself. And that's it. That is the end of the X-Men. The team has now disbanded for the first time since after Professor Xavier faked his own death in 1968. Like, there's no team anymore. This is a book called X-Men with no X-Men in it. And this is such a ballsy, daring move on Chris Claremont's part and such a bizarre way of doing it. Well, there's Wolverine, who is somewhat more literally an X-Man as usual, at least in terms of physical positioning right now. Oh, yes. He's on a big uh, wooden X. Yeah. But yeah, he's watching this and he's horrified. He's horrified at what Psylocke did. He knows that she telepathically pushed them, but he can't do a damn thing about it. It's also kind of neat because Wolverine's been hallucinating all these people from his past And he can't really tell what is or isn't real at this point, which I imagine only adds to the sort of fever dream feel of the whole thing. At which point we go back to the present where the Reavers are torturing Wolverine, trying to convince him to scream. And he is still hallucinating and hallucinating. And some of the things he sees make sense. You know, Dark Phoenix, Marco, Secret Agent Eric Carroll Danvers. One of them is significant, and that is Storm, who... At first glance looks normal, but you realize if you look closely that she's a child, that her costume's way too big on her. So this makes it very clear that though Claremont just killed Aurora a couple issues ago, the whole thing that's coming up soon where she comes back as a child having been de-aged by Nanny, like, that was the plan from the start. It also makes it pretty clear that Wolverine's gotta in some way be involved with Gateway's dream time because otherwise, dude would have no way of seeing the future. Now, there is another kid hanging around here who is an actual kid who is actually present, and that is Jubilee. And she's just watching, horrified, and I actually love the way the art works here, because as the Reavers literally nail Wolverine to this big wooden X, we don't see that happening. We just see Jubilee's increasingly horrified face. It's a really good horror movie technique that's used quite effectively here. Yeah, and I kind of appreciate that, because some of it's comics code, and it's not that we don't see Wolverine nailed up there. Like, we see that fairly graphically, but the significant part is Jubilee's reaction, and that's what's going to propel the story forward, and that it takes the moment to focus on that rather than just showing us the most exaggerated and gruesome part of the scene. And so she's trying to figure out what to do. She's going back and forth on, you know, should she help this guy? Should she watch out for her own skin? Look out for number one. That's the smart survivor's play, but he's hurt, and you don't want to end up the same way. He needs help. What's he to you? And Logan sees her. So, kid, you gonna give a fella a hand, or what? And that is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, but the end of X-Men number 251. So what's going to happen to these guys? Okay, so the team is disbanded at this point. Like, there are no X-Men, and that's going to be the case for a while. 
As far as the characters, a little bit of a preview for all of them. So a de-aged Storm, as we saw presaged here, will turn up in a couple of issues and start having adventures before too long with a certain Cajun thief who's going to appear for the first time. Oh, I'm actually looking forward to that. I give Gambit a lot of shit, but his and Storm's friendship is one of my favorite parts of that character. It's and pretty, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting there. It's pretty cool. Now, Longshot is a tragic tale because originally the reason he was going to leave the team was for an Anne Nesenti Art Adams Longshot solo series where he went and like sort of looked for his past and tried to figure out who he was. And that never happened, and I'm so sad. Like, I wish Rachel Summers had gotten her solo miniseries back in the day, and I wish Longshot had gotten this series or the other series he was supposed to get where he was up against Mephisto. He is next going to turn up in 1992 in a Mojoverse story with Dazzler and Lila Cheney. As far as Rogue, you were mentioning her earlier. Yes, she's not going to be around for a very long time. I think it's going to be about 18 issues, at which point she will show up in the Savage Land to fight a newly embodied Carol Danvers who has been sort of pulled out of her own head and hang out with and sort of hook up with Magneto. Yes, I actually really love Rogue and Magneto's romance. It's so weird, and you wouldn't think it would work, but it absolutely does. Well, you know, magnetism can counter her powers because magnetism. It's a miracle. He'll save every one of us. Ah! That would be an amazing mashup. I want to see that right now. Magneto and Flash Gordon. Somebody make it happen. No, 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 no. If you're going to have a character to be that, it should be Longshot. Oh, God, Longshot would fit so well into Flash Gordon. I know, right? Oh, shit. That wonderful mullet. But yeah, so what about Havoc? Havoc is going to turn up in Genosha during Extinction Agenda. Remember what I said about, you know, Havoc has been needing to shut up about human-mutant relations for a really long time? Well... The Siege Perilous is with me on this. Yeah, it gets pretty uncomfortable. Dazzler will actually show up pretty soon at Lila Shaney's place, but then she'll mostly disappear for a number of years after that. And Colossus will wake up as an artist, doing what he wants to do, painting. Which, of course, won't last, because if you were ever a character in X-Men, you keep getting pulled back in. And Psylocke is going to become the most uncomfortable metaphor for colonialism in the entire Marvel Universe. Boy, howdy, will we ever get to that. So, yes, what Claremont's doing with this thing, I gotta respect it. Like, he always talks about how he wanted the X-Men's lineup to change, how he wanted characters to, you know, phase in and phase out. And he just wrote out, over the course of a few issues, the entire team except for Wolverine. Yeah, this is fascinating because I think of the big threshold point in this as X-Men number one, as the stuff that's coming up in 1991. But it's not just that, is it? It's here. This is as drastic a change as that. Well, and in fact, X-Men Volume 2 Number 1, the Jim Lee-Chris Claremont relaunch that would go on to sell a horrifyingly large number of copies. Yeah, that's still the best-selling single issue Ever. Uh, and I think it'll probably remain that way probably forever. But that's actually a direct reaction to what Claremont was doing here. There were a lot of people at Marvel, from what I understand, Jim Lee included, who wanted the X-Men to go back to what they used to be like. You know, a team of mutants operating out of a school, working with Xavier, all the stuff Claremont had worked so hard to undo over the last 50 or so issues. And to some extent, redo, because one of the big things in that is that I know Lee really wanted Magneto as a villain and Claremont really objected to that, despite the fact that Magneto had already been revillainized by then. Yeah, thanks to John Byrne's work, in fact. So that's where we find ourselves. We are at the end of an era, at the beginning of a really, really weird era, and also at the end of a different era because, you know, this is the end of my father's collection. I'm excited to uh, go through what happens next, the parts that I'm a little bit less familiar with, but also, boy, uncharted weird, weird waters. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to examining what the X-Men are like without the X-Men. What happens when you not only change the status quo, but break the structure that it's existed in for all of this time. Moving forward in this series is going to be a lot of fun. For now, though, you have questions. Black Lois Lane asks on Tumblr, My brother says Wolverine is the Batman of the Marvel Universe. Is this true? And if so, what should I do with that knowledge? 
Okay, so they're not directly analogs in terms of their roles within the respective fictional universes. So, for instance, Batman's all about control and focus. Wolverine is fueled by passion and isn't really goal-oriented much at all. Plus, Batman's all about lack of powers, and Wolverine's powers are sort of integral to who he is. The points where they align have more to do with their roles within the publishing lines that they're part of. You know, having a zillion ongoing series, being all over the place, being loners who are pretty much also always on teams. Funny how that works. And we are not the only people who think so, because Marvel and DC, or at least some folks there, apparently agreed at least at one point in time. In the Amalgam series, which was the DC-Marvel crossover, analogous characters were mashed into new hybrids, and Wolverine and Batman were paired and became a character named Darkclaw. Is it here is Darkclaw possibly the most 90s name you could have? Did he also have a skateboard? I'm going to assume he did. It wasn't necessarily on panel, but you know, it's, it's in his bedroom. Actually, no, no, it's not the most 90s name, because there's no way to spell it with a Y. Oh, or there's no X-dash involved in it. Also, it's not Darkhawk. Good old Darkhawk. Oh, Darkhawk. But uh, regardless, as for what to do with this knowledge, you can use it to impress your friends and neighbors under very, very specific circumstances. Meanwhile, more like a Justice League asks on Tumblr, who would be the top five mutants to get high with? Jamie Madrox. I really can't follow that up with a serious answer, can I? You really can't. Okay, well, in that case, we are a listener-supported podcast, and one of the uh, rewards that we offer to people who support us at a certain level is thanks on air and a variety of fictional conceptual voices, so I'm going to turn it over to everyone's favorite angry Claremontian narrator. You didn't ask to be here, Cole Weathers. Your powers and the accompanying responsibility were thrust upon you, and you've done your best to rise to the occasion. But now you find yourself cutting corners— slipping closer and closer to the one thing you promised yourself never to become. Jason Grayson. Meanwhile... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. And new episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. And be sure to come see us at Rose City Comic Con. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free and at Rose City Comic Con and not going through the siege perilous, then check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be shuffling cards, rolling up characters, and pulling up three extra chairs and mics. As we ditch the 616 for the hallowed halls of Bayville High in our second annual giant-sized summer special. Giant-sized summer special.